Hello, and welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcasts that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We record on the traditional territories of the Neutral, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. On this program, we read books written by local writers and we talk about all kinds of subjects. Our slogan is, listen local, think global. We began Watershed Writers in the winter of 2021, and this is our third season of talking with writers in the Grand River region. I'm your host, Tanis McDonald. I'm a poet, essayist, scholar, voracious reader, and free-range literary animal. The show is produced by the intrepid Francis Roberts Riley, and our technical director is John Roscoe. We are very happily partnered with the wonderful people at Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo. And you can catch our past episodes, including all of Seasons 1 and 2, on the Watershed Writers account on SoundCloud or on Midtown Radio's account on Spotify. Today on Watershed Writers, I want to introduce to you a very, very local story. A Kitchener story that you might know about if you've lived in the area for decades. I haven't lived in the area for decades. I have been here a scant 17 years, so I just heard about this recently. This is a book, and I think it's fair to say that this book charts a phenomenon that I first heard about two years ago, when its author told me about a dance club and bar at which she used to DJ in the 1980s. And now the book is out. It's called The Back Door. And it's a chronicle of the musicians, artists, and personalities that were part of Kitchener's underground subculture during the 1970s to the 1990s at the legendary Back Door Bar. It existed in various incarnations beneath the Metro Restaurant on Victoria Street in Kitchener. Its author is radio broadcaster, journalist, and now memoirist, Coral Andrews, our guest on this episode of Watershed Writers. Coral Andrews is a Kitchener-based writer and culture journalist whose writing has appeared in many publications, including Saturday Night, Take One, Graffiti, The New Quarterly, Can Play, Performing Arts and Entertainment in Canada, Grand Magazine, and Harrowsmith. Coral has hosted her own radio show, Coral FM, for more than 35 years, and she has interviewed celebrities galore, including Lynn Redgrave, Phyllis Diller, Cynthia Lennon, Bernard Fowler of the Rolling Stones, Lenny Lovitch, and Graham Chapman from Monty Python. Coral also received a special jury award from the Waterloo Region Arts Awards Committee, and their comments at that time included, Coral Andrews' contribution to the cultural vibrancy of our region transcends all categories. She has produced a wide range of literary, theatrical, and live music events. She is a generous mentor, especially for new and emerging performance artists. Coral, 
is an immeasurable asset to this community. And I also want to tell you something about Coral that not everybody knows. She was an early supporter of Watershed Riders when we were just getting started. And when she sent me that draft of her introduction to the book that became The Back Door in May of 2021, I knew that she needed to get that story in print and that we needed to get her on the show. Welcome, Coral Andrews, to Watershed Riders. Hi, Dennis. It's fun to be here. It's great to have you. And one of the things that I want to remind you of first, I want to cast your mind back to June of 2021. And that is when you first emailed me saying that you were writing this book. And you sent me a little excerpt of it. The excerpt that becomes the uh, opening chapter of the book, the memoir that you've written called The Back Door. Now, how have you been summarizing The Back Door uh, as a book? It's different than writing articles. I've been writing articles since 1977, I think. So I just thought, oh, this book is like writing 52 little stories. Not a big deal. Wrong. Oh, that was wrong. The Back Door started off as 30 chapters. My editor, Sarah B. Hood, she read it. She goes, well, let's get this down to 15 and let's switch things around. Because I had one chapter towards the end. She said, oh, no, no, this is going up right up, up at the beginning. I went, okay, fine. So to me, I guess it was like a big puzzle writing it. But then it became an entirely different puzzle doing rewrites. It was, it's an amazing process. So the backdoor, we could we could call it a memoir, right? Because it's it based on, on memories of your working in what can be maybe best characterized as an underground punk bar in Kitchener in the 70s and 80s. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And the bar is known as the backdoor. Now, it has a very particular history, why it's called the backdoor, where it is, and the type of people who came to it and your role in it as a DJ. So can you tell us a little bit about, yeah, about how it started, how the back door started and how you got involved? Before it was the back door, it was an entirely different bar altogether. It started off as a black light biker bar in the mid seventies. And then Milan Rezdalek and his partner, Carla Kubank, when they purchased the Metro, they had been working in Toronto. They'd been hanging around in this place in Yorkville called Fingers, and which eventually became a bar called Chimes, and it was high-end disco. So Milan said, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm buying the Metro, and I am putting this high-end disco underneath the schnitzel house because I am sick of these underage kids and these bikers hanging around in this blacklight dive. So it was the first disco in town, and then when disco died, then Milan went, okay, well, punk and new wave was kind of creeping in everywhere. And his DJs that were down there were advising him. There were guys like, one guy worked at a record store in Cambridge, John Jeffros. And he, he said, we should have a different DJ every night. And this is the music we should be playing. And Milan was really smart because, you know, for him, it was about entertaining his customers, you know, with whatever was going on, the style of the time. So if it wasn't disco... It was punk and new wave. So that's how the back door came to be. And it was a different DJ every night. 
And that was really interesting as well, because every night had a different character at the bar. The only reason the back door closed was because we had an element that used to come down called the cattle ranchers or dune goons, and they lived a punk ethic. So they thought they were from, you know, England, 1977. Oh, let's destroy everything everywhere we go. We destroy where we hang out. So they used to trash the washroom. So there was a washroom trashing in 1981. And shortly after that, Milan said, I've had enough of this. I'm, I, I can't deal with these people anymore. He got into a couple of altercations with these guys. And then the bar closed as the back door, and it opened as a Beatles bar called The Cavern because Milan grew up in Czechoslovakia. He was under, under communist rule, couldn't listen to Elvis or the Beatles or anything. So he thought, okay, well, this is an underground you know, underground bar. There's a, a factory down the road that's closing. I'm going to get all these reclaimed bricks, and I'm going to turn it into the cavern. So that's that's what he did, and that lasted a year and a half. And that was amazing. We had Beatles art all around. Like This disco had a stainless steel dance floor, which is a character all by itself, and a mirrored ceiling and mirrors all around. So when it was the cavern, Milan had a, our friend John Perchelock, who was an artist, he had him draw all the Beatles art on the mirrors around the bar when it was a cavern. So that really added to the whole atmosphere, which was great. But then that closed, like the, the poor back door. Everybody knows it was the back door, but it was kind of a chameleon phoenix. It kept rising from the ashes all the time. Well, I'm not a disco anymore. I'm a punk bar. I'm not a punk bar anymore. I'm a Beatles bar. Oh, God, I'm an all-ages bar. I'm a video lounge. And I'm a jazz bar. And I'm a comedy bar. Like, it, <laughs> it was crazy. And this was from 1979 to 1995. So it had so many different incarnations. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to find out people that are associated with all these incarnations and see if there's a book here and see where it goes from there. And the more I wrote, the more I found out about the phases of the bar, the more fascinating it became, like buried treasure. Like when it was a jazz bar, Vines, in the 1993-94, there are a ton of jazz musicians that played down there that I had no clue about. You know, I found out that Brown Man Ali played down there. Mo Kaufman almost got a gig down there, but it didn't work out for some reason. I brought in Ed the Sock, and that was his first. <laughs> yeah, that was his first gig outside of Toronto. Can you imagine? And I talked to somebody the other night. That was his first date, and uh, she said, I, "I don't know if I'm going to hang around with this guy anymore. Taking me to a show like this? This is crazy." I mean, the back door. You know, it, it changed over the years in some ways, but in other ways, it was the same because there was never one person managing it. It was like Milan owned it, but he had various people managing it underneath him. And if they failed to pay the rent, well, he'd say, OK, you can't pay me the rent. So the bar is going to that's it. We're closing the bar. I can't afford this. I don't know why I did this. I had a diary called the Guiding Schnitzel. <laughs> I love the guiding schnitzel and I love the guiding schnitzel as this as the backbone of the story. Right. Yeah. And, and the idea is you kept this parodic diary, the guiding schnitzel after the guiding light. Right. And the yes. fact that the Metro yeah. was a schnitzel uh, restaurant. So it became sort of your, your first draft in a way, the, the kind of yes. um, Bible that you went back to and referred to. And 
in some ways, I mean, I can, when I was reading the book, I was thinking, okay, how much of this was in the guiding schnitzel and how much did Carol have to go and research? You know, sometimes what we write 30 years ago <laughs> needs a kind of translation when you, when you come back to it now, right? Yeah, you're right. Oh, I wrote about this happened downstairs and then I would see, I was always also writing for the Water Chronicle back then. So I was writing about the first Yuck Yucks night down there with Pat Bullard and Larry Horowitz and Mike McDonald. And and Mike McDonald's a controversial comic. And there was a woman heckler in the crowd. And I kind of wrote about that in The Guiding Schnitzel, but apparently in the Chronicle, I had written about it in detail. So I was able to refer to all of that and put that in the book. I went, I totally forgotten about all this. And the and people would say to me, oh, so-and-so played down there this year, and da-da-da-da-da, and I'm going, no, that's wrong. It is written in the guiding schnitzel. On this date, at this time, and this month, that it happened this way, not the way you're describing it. Carl Cubank, she just we should get an autograph book, because she and Milan, you know, they like to go out in town and check out other restaurants and trends and stuff. They were both visionaries, I think. They would go to Lulu's like a couple times a week because they love the music there. But they would let people know, we have a schnitzel house and then Kitchener. And so people like Brenda Lee would come to town or Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. And if people were playing at Center and Square too, the word got out, the food was really good at the Metro. So they would show up there for dinner. And Carla goes, well, let them sign the book. So I thought, okay, we can have an autograph book. We can, we can also have a diary. I was waitressing upstairs around three o'clock in the afternoon. It was kind of dead. And so I would sit down in the front section with a coffee and just sit there and write in the guiding schnitzel. And when I wasn't there, other people would write in it too, which was even funnier. You know, people that worked upstairs, like other waitresses, and they would say, well, Coral's not here. She's in Toronto doing some sort of press blitz or whatever. So I'm taking over and I'm writing. So, and that was really funny too, because I would come back and look at the pages going, oh, so-and-so wrote about this. This is really neat. So it was really interesting. And I, I thought I only wrote one guiding schnitzel. It was like a, this very austere trial balance bookkeeping book. When I, I was at, in St. Jacob's at Milan's place, because he's still a really good friend, there were three volumes of the guiding schnitzel, and they kept them. They were in the basement. So Katrina was visiting, and she, she was laughing her head off. She goes, I've got something for you. I went, what? She goes, here's your guiding schnitzels. I went, guiding schnitzels? I thought I only wrote one. She goes, no, you wrote three. So that really helped as well. It was like my holy grail. And, you know, I know that when you were um, when you were young and writing this and looking for a funny name, thinking of, of everything that went on uh, in the metro and in the back door as kind of a soap opera. So you called it the guiding schnitzel because of the guiding light. And there is a yeah. moment in the book where you say, shoot, I missed the chance to call it as the schnitzel turns. Right. I and know. <laughs> but, Which was but, funny. But um, the funniest thing is that, of course, the guiding schnitzel does turn out to be your guide in yeah. uh you know 30 years later right that and was my roadmap yeah totally now a couple of times okay so we've got the schnitzel restaurant uh upstairs and it's a going concern and people are coming there to eat there and sometimes they they come downstairs sometimes they perform and certainly you work uh, upstairs as a waitress and downstairs as one of the first female djs right 
I wanted to ask about about that, about DJing and club going as a kind of theater, because you got into not only the music, but also a kind of costuming uh, as, oh, a, yeah. as a DJ. So tell me about that, like a, a kind of theatrical presentation. We had this DJ downstairs on Monday nights called Mad Mel from Manchester. He was moody, you know, very moody, um, but a visionary. As people are from Manchester, right? Oh, yes. He's, he's it's like, all the rain. He's playing Joy Division and Doll by Doll and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's a Monday night. And I went up to him. You know, I'm in my mid-20s or something like that. Going, Can't you play anything? This is so depressing. Can't you play something, you know, a little bit more upbeat? He went, oh, yeah? Well, if you think you're so effing good, then you do it yourself. So I told Carla Milan, I said, Mel, quit. He doesn't want to do Mondays anymore. It's not an easy night for DJing anyway. How do you get people down to a bar on a Monday night? So they said, okay, go do it. Create your own vision. Figure out what you want to do. So my nickname was called Squeaky because I would get excited and my voice would raise an octave and I would squeak. <laughs> so there's that. And then Squeaky Fromm, Squeaky from, she tried to assassinate somebody. I think it was one of the presidents. So I thought, oh, yeah, Squeaky Fromm, okay, but I'm going to say S-Q-U-E-E-K-E-E, -E -E, Squeaky. And then we used to play Bibi Gabor Moscow Drug Club. And one of the lines in the song is, where subversive sit and talk. And it was like, a, you know, Moscow Drug Club is a little cafe. And I thought, it reminds me of the back door. So subversive was my last name. You know, I'd be in the booth in the afternoons and I'd be, I'd be practicing and I'd be playing a lot of Kate Bush and stuff. And I always loved theater. Like I, in high school, I did a lot of theater. So I started dressing like Kate. I started um, dressing up like the people that I featured so Kate Bush or Talking Heads or Devo or the B-52s night where I had a red chiffon dress on, a turquoise boa, a beehive, and a B-52 crashing into the side of my head thanks to a friend <laughs> of mine who was a hairstylist and was just as theatrical, Patty Glar Bentley. People just loved it. So it would be Monday nights would be packed because of the music we were playing. And then they would come down to see what the heck I was going to dress up as next. So as I mentioned, I was with a friend of mine last night, and he remembers me on Talking Heads night. So I had two styrofoam heads, like one head on each shoulder, plus my head. And three people came up to the DJ booth and said, hey, Coral, like they just went one, two, three, would you like to dance? It was just crazy. So it was like performance art. When I was writing for FM Times, I was doing record reviews. I use squeaky subversive as a byline too. I love theater. I love being on stage and I was missing it. So I thought, well, you know what? Let's combine performance art and music and see what we come up with. But after a while, it was just, oh, what am I going to dress as now? <laughs> How am I going to outdo myself? You know, I did Devo night with a turquoise garbage bag, a wide belt an upside down red plastic flower pot on my head and reflector glasses. I took a cab because I was at Tracy's place and she lived on Francis Street in the wool shop. I'm not walking down Francis Water Street like looking like this to Victoria. So I took a cab to work and I come in the front door and into the kitchen and Milan goes, oh my God, what the hell are you wearing? I said, well, it's Devo night downstairs. He goes, well, my friends are here from Toronto. You have to have to see you. And I went, oh, man. So then I had to go on the back lounge and waltz through the back lounge, 
full back lounge of diners. And they kind of looked at me like, what the hell is that? And then I, you know, I went into the kitchen. I went, satisfied. And I raced downstairs down to the bar. <laughs> well, context is important, right? <laughs> Even in the theater, what looks subversive in one, uh, in one room is, uh, yeah, looks a little crazy in another. Okay. <laughs> So, and you weren't the only person who was dressing up. And that's what I, I thought was it was interesting, that you inspired others to dress up as well in terms of, I'm thinking of the, the young men known as the Sexy Six. The sexy Six. Well, actually, they when they first came down to the bar, they were in plaid, plaid shirts and jeans. And then the Sex Pistols come out. So all of a sudden, they're, they, we kind of encouraged each other. Um, they started dressing a la Sid Vicious, especially Tim Heidemann. There's a picture of him in the book. I told him, I go, you, you could be like a sex pistol. He goes, right. I'll take that as a compliment. That's great. But they got into the sex pistols and then Duran Duran and then Adam and the Ants and then the Stray Cats. So they would emulate the music that they loved. And they weren't the only people. There a lot of girls coming downstairs. A lot of them would dress as the girls from the B-52s. And there was one woman that looked like, um, Sue Catwoman, like from the sex pistols. And there was another girl that had a spiked mohawk. So they were people watching much music and reading New Music Express and getting their ideas, their fashion ideas from them, from there. And there were a lot of vintage clothing stores in Kitchener, too. So you just go to the secondhand shops and buy all kinds of stuff. And then they would combine their own wardrobe. So it was great. People are saying, oh, I wish there were cell phones back then. And I'm, other people are telling me, thank God there were no cell phones back then. But and my friend Patrick, why he's always had a curiosity. So he was documenting the scene. He was down there taking pictures and, and outside of the bar, too, of the people that played down there. So I thought, I think I can put this book together because I have all these black and white images that Pat sent me. And then other people started sending me stuff, too. And I thought, this is interesting. You know, I, I don't have a lot of the girls, though. I have more of the guys. The girls really looked smart. They they really dressed up. And it was just a fun time. And people called it, you know, the Studio 54 of Kitchener. But it, but it was so small and intimate. It just was a lot of fun to dress up. Rodney Reagan was another guy. He would come in with a, a piece of styrofoam on his head that was brave-handed turquoise, which looked like a helmet, that kind of stuff, right? And he would dance like a robot. And so it was like being in another dimension sometimes. I don't think it could ever be repeated again. Not, not something like that. So this, in some ways, the story of the back door is in some ways a, a kind of hyper-local story because it you know, takes place in Kitchener at a particular yeah. time and place in a particular time and community and had these kinds of effects. I like your characterization of it as a kind of chameleon and a phoenix, right? I'm interested in what might be considered an unexpected coolness happening in this mid-sized city and how people in Toronto uh, thought that this was kind of, kind of farmland and uninteresting. And yet, and yet there are all these people from, you know, bringing, uh, bringing the punk scene over from England and bringing different musical tastes and ideas of revolution and freedom from Eastern Europe. When I think of, of Milan and Carla, yeah. right. That's definitely. Right. And, and I thought that that was a really fascinating part of this, that part of it is, was really formed by the spirit of Kitchener, right? And the risk-taking that people were doing was very much informed by the, the spirit of the city. Yeah, I think I want to you know, invite you to talk a little bit about that. 
this is a book about youth culture on the one hand, right? But on yeah. the other hand, it's also inspired by people who were older, who wanted to create a kind of space uh, that was artistic like this and that had freedom like this. Well, and when, when the back door opened, I don't think he quite knew what to expect. Um, when the second phase of the back door opened, it was more like a crypt and he got into it. He's like, okay, well, Daryl Purdy and Jackie Bruner, Jacqueline Bruner were running the bar. They, they, they looked the part. So my man went, okay, well, I'm going to go out and get a, I'm going to get a guillotine and stick that against a wall. Right. So he, he got right into the spirit. When Jackie and Daryl brought all the bands in from Queen Street West, all he was happy about, it was busy downstairs. People are liking the music and the rent money was coming in. He was not always there because his daughter was becoming a freestyle skier. So they were on the road a lot. The best thing I think Milan ever did was let other people run the bar, especially when it was the backdoor redux, because we had people like Neon Rome in there and Change of Heart and Blurt from England. Now, this is an industrial avant-garde band. And the only reason they played Kitchener was because two guys from Kitchener had seen the show in Toronto saying, how much do we have to pay you to get to Kitchener for one night? And they, they came. They came. The place was packed. But back then, there was a scene. So people would follow their favorite DJ. So, it, you know, word got out about electric techs. And people were coming in from Toronto and Hamilton to check this out. And then word got out about some of the bands we were bringing downstairs and the other Toronto bands. They wanted a part of it too, like Sturm Group and Shadowy Man and a Shadowy Planet and all kinds of other, like there were just amazing bands coming in from all over the place to Kitchener. We put Kitchener on the map as a place for these bands to tour, which normally they wouldn't, wouldn't have come to. It was more Hamilton, Toronto, London. But then people heard about the back door in Kitchener and they, you know, there would be bars in Toronto and they would come to Kitchener when the back door is cooler than the bars in Toronto. I'm like, wow, really? I think the chemistry of people that were running it down there and just the way it all happened, it happened really organically, almost by accident sometimes. And there was no, you know, no internet, nothing. You couldn't find these bands. You'd have to, Jackie said, you know, it'd be in the phone book trying to find these guys and give them a phone call and hope they would call you back to see if you could book them in. And then they had uh, Level 21 opened up in 1984. So it was kind of a sister bar to the back door in some ways, but it was above the Mayfair Hotel in downtown Kitchener. So there were other little bars starting to open up, but the back door was the first one and probably the most original one. Because it was so small, somebody said 40 people down there, it looked packed. But there were times where Milan was a little bit concerned. He's like, he was always in, always in, in touch with the fire inspectors. They were well aware of the, the volume down, like the capacity downstairs. So I, I think we might have had too many people when it was blurt. And maybe when there was an, oh, forgotten, the forgotten rebels. Oh boy, that was one heck of a show. And they came in from Hamilton. It was, you know, absolutely packed. I mean, they were like Canada's sex pistols. And they were from Hamilton, and they were really hot back then, and the scene was really hot. We had people coming in that were regulars of the bar. But as I mentioned in the book, we also had a bunch of people that came in that had never been in there before. And it was almost like, hey, let's go down and observe the freak show. So that wasn't good. There was a dark element to the back door, too. Punks were targeted, kind of like gay people. They were, they were targeted. They'd be walking down the street. 
looking differently and somebody would yell out of a car, punk rock faggot or whatever, right? And there would be, people would be leaving the bar and there would be guys out in the parking lot waiting to beat them up. I didn't see a lot of that because I was inside DJing. I just heard from a lot of people about that. Especially when I started writing the book. I'm like, really? That happened? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was, um, yeah, there was a dark element too, for sure. And you also mentioned in the book that in some ways, because there was such an element of theatricality and people were encouraged to dress up and encouraged uh, to be uh, to be artsy and influence each other in that way, that lots of gay people did come to the yes. back door because it seemed like a like a safe space as long as it was within the confines of it. And but of yeah. course, there's this violence that could happen in the parking lot or on the way to one's car. Yeah, that's true. We did have a lot of gay people coming down because they were attracted to the music. You know, uh, it was very creative, very artistic. And so we had a lot of gay people coming downstairs and they felt safe because there were no labels. There were no labels at all. Nobody had a label. Everybody was accepted. And they they all had, a you know, a really good time. Everybody would sit around and talk about ideas and encourage each other. There were some amazing artistic collaborations that came out of the back door too. Some people that used to go down there that became famous musicians one opened up an art cinema in Waterloo. Uh-huh. The owner of the Princess Cinema, right? Yeah, John. Like, he used to come downstairs and he goes, I used to talk to everybody about the idea of opening an art house cinema. And he was, they were encouraging him to do it. And so he came upstairs one afternoon. I used to give him a schnitzel burger and a beer. And then one day he came up and said, I'm going to open this, this place in Waterloo. What do you think? I mean, I think that's a great idea. So he was encouraged by people that came to the back door to open the princess. So the princess opened in 1985. Me and the princess have been parallel ever since. And we're very close. We're very supportive of each other, which, you know, I love. And the princess is still going. Princess is 38 years old this year. And CKWR is 50 years old this year. And we've always been linked. So it's so great. You're listening to Watershed Riders on Midtown Radio KW. Coming up on episodes of the show, we'll have Cree author Clarence Kachiji talking about his new book, North Wind Man. And I'll be talking to David Waltner Taves about his memoir, A Conspiracy of Chickens. You can find all our episodes on SoundCloud and on Spotify. Visit our website at watershedriders.ca. What I want now is, again, I want to hear a little bit from the book. I'd love to hear you read from the book. Uh, You've been telling stories that appear in the book, but I want to hear some of your prose writing, your prose styling. You know, I appreciate your comment that it's one thing to write. You've been a music journalist uh, in one way or another for for decades, and uh, I appreciate that there's a a real difference between writing 52 articles and writing a book. So, um, yeah, I want to hear a little bit about how the book sounds. I thought I would start off chapter one. This is called Cow's Week, and this is chapter one. In 1986, I saw Sid and Nancy, the biographical film about infamous dead anti-hero Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen. Gary Oldman played Sid, the rabid Sex Pistols bassist, and Chloe Webb took on the role of his manic groupie lover, Nancy. 
Nancy's favorite catchphrase was blaze of glory. Her pledge to die was said was like a modern take on the Who's generational declaration, I hope I die before I get old, from their 60s anthem, My Generation. I always understood Nancy's pledge to mean throwing all cautions to the wind in life, love, and music. And I lived my own blaze of glory from 1978 to 1995, thanks to a place called The Back Door. The Back Door was a little basement bar in a little Ontario city. You could find it not far from the city center nestled below the Metro Tavern on Victoria Street in Kitchener, Ontario, a medium-sized city in southwestern Ontario, just west of Toronto. The Metro was a popular schnitzel house and it was always busy. But during its heyday, on beneath the floorboards lay a glorious alter ego, a dark punk bar with live bands and a dance floor lurking below like a chameleon underbelly. The back door, and that's where this story begins. The back door will always be a part of me. Some have called it Schnitzel Ridge, which lies on the other side of the via railway tracks, the crypt, the cavity, the slum. It's a notorious brick niche that some will never forget for its lack of big. This basement remains an intriguing phantom. It has no real identity. It changed through the years, yet remains the same. It has always exuded a chameleon charisma that is hard to pinpoint, unlike the Metro restaurant upstairs, which has always been an entirely different world. After 60 years in business, the Metro is still busy drawing hungry diners with its schnitzel and old world European cuisine, but the back door's tenure was not as enduring like a naughty sibling caught in the moment in a specific time and place. Even so, it remains rooted in local music history. Although the space was open as a bar for almost 20 years, my time at the back door is just a fleeting phenomenon that can never be replicated or replaced. Luckily, it was shared with a wild crowd of young adults, many of whom recall their memories to help me fill in the gaps. The back door was more than a bar. It was the people who worked there. It was the punk music we heard there. It was the artists who played there. It was the extraordinary cast of characters who made this ever-changing crypt legendary. We continue to swap our stories amongst ourselves, letting them flow on social media. Everyone has a tale about the back door, detailing the magic of one incarnation after another. My favorite description of it all comes from Dan Aykroyd of Ghostbusters movie fame. We were chatting in one of his Toronto bars about his days at iconic late night TV show, Saturday Night Live. Referring to his days on SNL, he told me, I was there, I lived it, and the back door lives on in me. Great, thank you. I love that. I love that quote from Dan Aykroyd. I also really, I'm, I'm intrigued by your use of uh, Spongeon's term, blaze of glory. And of wow. course, that means something very specific to her life. Uh, and of course, it has meant, in fact, it came from the, the same source. It has meant something very different for you. So this is a book about... Uh, your youth, right? And, and uh, creating a music and art culture in your youth. Can you talk to me a little bit about the process of writing this? Because I bet people have said to you, you could write a book about this because these were such, you know, these were such wild years. Uh, and you had the guiding schnitzel and you had yeah. the memories of other people and all of this is good. But what were the major challenges in, uh, in putting this together as a book? As a journalist, I thought, well, well, I can't just say, you have to figure out where the back door came from. How did Carla Milan get here? 
Why did they come to Kitchener? So I traced it right back to, you know, Milan's childhood and growing up in this spa town in Slovakia and how he met Carla and how they went to Toronto and just worked in the food industry and then came here and bought the bar. And I thought, okay, well, I had no idea that the bar was a German lounge because um, like for, you know, families go downstairs and have a beer uh, because Rudy Meister had it. It was a house and then he turned it into a restaurant and then he sold it to two Czechoslovakian guys, Joe and Desan, who turned it into bottles, which was this crazy underground blacklight bar. We used to play, you know, Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and all this stuff with this wild DJ named Ivan. You know, so it, it went from there. So I, and I found people, oh, I remember the back door, but I don't, re I remember it as bottles. What the heck's bottles? So I found a, a guy that, you know, still goes to a lot of music, local music shows, Alan Barlow. And he told me all about balls. I went, oh, this is cool. This is brilliant. This is great. The only thing I couldn't find, I couldn't find a lot of people that, that went to the disco. I found one guy that went to Mannequins, which was hilarious because that was a very strange phase of the bar. It didn't last long, but there were mannequins from Woolworths down there, hence the name Mannequins. I went on Facebook and I found people and I thought, well, maybe, maybe they would talk to me. Some people, some people didn't want to talk to me for the book. Like I kind of mm. get that. I thought, okay, I did a chronological timeline. And then when I sent it to Sarah, Sarah B. Hood, my editor in Toronto, and also Siobhan McCollum, who's my assistant editor, she's awesome. Sarah goes, let's mix it up. Like, don't do a timeline. Let's let's do this by events that happen. Like put the guiding schnitzel near the front. Don't put it at the, the end of the book because that's that's important. That's kind of what helped you to write the rest of the book. And then I had personal diaries. So I was writing diaries back then. I had 10 diaries. So I'm going, okay, wow, I forgot about this. So this can go in the cavern chapter or this can go in mannequins. Then I thought, well, I'll do the chapters by the phases of the bar. And that's why it got, so the book got, it was 30 chapters. So I thought, well, this is too long. Let's just combine the phases together because some of the phases of the bar, one phase lasted three months, not because of a flood. I think they didn't pay the rent on time or something like that. So I thought, let's, let's, let's put this together. Let's, let's have a chapter on Milan. Let's have a chapter on his kids. What was it like being one of Milan and Carla's kids growing up in an atmosphere like that? And that was an eye-opener from both of them, for sure. And then I wanted to write about the staff. It was sad because Carla is no longer here. Sipko no longer here either. But I found Tracy and I found my friend John Perchlock. And that was by total coincidence because he was in a hospital and I have a friend who was a nurse and she sent me a picture because she listens to CKWR. She mentioned my name and he went, Carl, no, I know her. So I get a picture of him going, oh my God, I've been trying to find John because he was a staff member and a big part of what happened cosmetically at the Metro upstairs and downstairs, which is really neat. I just kind of put it together that way. And then at the end... I thought, well, my editor suggested, okay, so you're still doing your thing. And all these years later, I'm playing the same music that I played down at the back door as a radio host every afternoon, like Susie and the Banshees, The Clash, all this stuff. I'm saying, this has come full circle. But then my editor said, what about punk on a global scale? I went, oh, well. So I thought, well, this is an interesting 
way to to come to the ending of a book, right? So it was it was fascinating, you know. And then doing rewrites and stuff like that. And then Milan would he's not the easiest person to interview. So he would say, "Oh yeah, I remember this." So I I'd have notes on my phone. Oh, this can go in this chapter. This makes more sense now because there were holes missing in some of the things he said. Wow. I started in 2020 thinking about it. And I had some losses while I was writing the book as well, including my my mom and a few other people. So that kind of delayed me. Like that kind of stopped the process a bit because I had a hard time. I, I couldn't. Sometimes you just can't write. Grief Im- impedes creativity for sure, right? Yeah. And I, I'm yeah. sorry to hear yeah. about your mother. That's that's always a, a hard loss. Yeah. In terms of putting the book together, I mean, I think it's it's a challenge for everyone writing a memoir, right? Because the memories seem very, very rich, but then you have to find a way to get that richness onto the page in a way that people who weren't there understand it. So you have to choose some events over other events. And as you just mentioned, and sometimes there are gaps in memory, in stories, yeah. there are contradictions, right? And you have to choose, you know, which ones you're, you're going to go with. So uh, it sounds like you got good editing advice. I always say to my students that uh, who are emerging writers, I say, you know, chronology is overrated. Having everything in an even timeline is is very overrated, right? We we yeah. do want to see that that act of memory and the, that the impetus of the guiding schnitzel and and other other things. Something I wanted to ask you about was your relationship with one of the bartenders, uh, Tracy, who you mentioned just briefly. And Tracy is a, a big a personality uh, as a bartender and uh, very tough. And uh, you were often mistaken for a particular persona when you were uh, DJing. And she was often mistaken for Chrissy Hind. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, Tracy, we were really close for a long time. She looked like Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders. And she emulated all of that because she was right into punk. Punk was a major big deal for her. We used to dress as Lena Lovage all the time and sometimes not just in the bar, but in public. So I would have people come up to me on the bus going, oh, wow, you really do look like Lena Lovage. I'm like, oh, okay. But Tracy, she was always into music. She knew, you know, what music to look for, the new music. She was kind of like a, almost like a prophet that way. It's like, here's the music we should be playing. Here's the music you should be listening to. She was in, she was interested in photography and things like that, but had a restless sort of spirit. So got out of that and then met a musician, Gary Lima from a band called The Dice, and they moved here. And she helped Gary. Like Gary said, without Tracy, the band, the Dice, would not have taken off. They wouldn't have done everything they did without Tracy's help. The backdoor guys would come down because they were mad and in love with her because she looked so much like Chrissy Hine. But she was tough. She could be she was very kind as well. And we were we were good friends. But then she made some different. She took a different path than I did. She got involved with somebody that was pretty hardcore that I couldn't relate to. And I, I was pretty straight compared to a lot of that crowd. So she took off to Toronto and I didn't hear from her for the longest time because it didn't end well. And then she contacted me a little while ago because she was working on a book project and her friend Flav said, you should try and find Coral. So he found me on social media and she goes, Hey, Squeak, it's, it's Trace. I'm like, Oh my God, where have you been? So we, you know, we're, we're back to being friends again. She, she always believed in me as a writer 
even back then, even when I was first starting out, she's like, oh yeah, Squeak, you can, you're, you're going to be a writer. I went, I, I am like, I don't have a lot, of, sometimes don't have a lot of confidence, but she always had confidence in me. And then the slum sisters, she would say, well, what didn't we get away with? Where didn't we go? And how did we pack all of that on top of you waitressing upstairs and freelancing at the same time? I went, I don't know. We were young. We had a lot of energy. We'd go to, to check out various bands and stuff like that. And we walked down King Street. I'd be wearing fishnet stockings and, and feathers in my hair. And it was like a long ponytail. And sometimes I'd, you know, I'd, I'd kind of dress like Lena Lovitch. And she was pretty outrageous. And Tracy would wear black leather and she had, you know, her really cool hair and her punk wardrobe and her little boots. And we would walk down King Street and people would look at us like, wow, these two are, you know, something else. But we still are very, we're very close these days after we didn't talk to each other for like 30 some odd years. She talked to me a lot for the book. She gave me, she told me a lot of stuff that I'd forgotten about as well. Some good and some bad. She she broke up a lot of fights down there. Oh, man. Too many when I think about it. But she was like a bouncer and no <laughs> fear whatsoever. So, yeah, we were, we were pretty tight. That's for sure. Well, she's definitely a kind of fascinating character. And I, I was really intrigued at female friendships in the book, uh, particularly between you and Tracy, and also the featuring of female artists. Our listeners can't see this, but right over Coral's shoulder, I can see a big poster of Kate Bush. And, you know, I think of Kate Bush and how popular she's been in the last 18 months uh, with her song being featured on, on Stranger Things. And mm -hmm. I also think of the, the hilarious detail that she did not sell rights to her music when she was a young woman, probably because mm -hmm. she didn't particularly trust the system. And yes. now, of course, she made a gazillion <laughs> off uh, off of this this occurrence right so yeah so i I'm, I'm interested in like the kind of you might or might not call it feminism right but certainly female friendships yeah. and and being interested in in female artists and uh you and tracy supporting each other um, i think kate like she started very young she had a lot of really great people around her but she was also you know she produced her own work and kind of a visionary and very theatrical. So I was very drawn to Kate Bush before anybody. And then I discovered Lena Lovitz and she was just outrageous. And I ended up interviewing her. She, you know, sang with Nina Hagen, the German, crazy German singer, operatic. And I said, well, how'd you guys learn how to sing? Oh, well, I would walk home from school. I would sing as high as I could and as low as I could. And then I met Nina and we became kindred spirits and we used to do like horror screen tracks together to make <laughs> extra money. I'm like, oh my God. And then we're in the movie Cha-Cha together as well. Like Nina's sitting in the bar watching Nina sing knock, knock, knocking on Herman's door. Herman proved. It's pretty wild. They encouraged me to dress up. Like I did a Nina Hagen. Like these women were really, really strong. And Tracy just you know, loved all of this music, but she was, she was strong in her own right anyway, because she had a pretty, you know, a pretty complex childhood. I did too. My parents weren't home a lot. So the three of us, I was a middle kid and I was always looking for attention. So that's one reason I think I became a writer because I, I wanted my parents to notice me, you know, and I thought walking Aww. into the theater and I was, I know it's such a cliche sob story, but still, I just thought, okay. And these, these women are really strong. I mean, some of them were way, way over the top, like Wendy Williams of the Plasmatics with a chainsaw. That was pretty wild. But then there's Toya Wilcox. 
She and Hazel O'Connor did a film called Breaking Glass about a singer who, you know, becomes this alien. And I thought, well, this is, it was so artistic and so groundbreaking. And they were all women. So I thought, I'm going to dress as all these female artists because I'm the female DJ downstairs. So why not? I mean, the other guys didn't do it. Kevin Diebold, he looked like John Lennon from the Beatles. And I, you know, I'm a huge Beatles fanatic. And I saw the Beatles in Belfast when I was a kid. They were at a place called Newtown Brita at the Supermac at the mall entrance. This was like 1964, 63. Wow. My dad said, well, where do you think you got that big Beatles badge from? Because my parents are English. I went, I don't remember. He goes, you saw the Beatles. You just don't remember it as a kid. But John Lennon, a huge, huge impact on me. Like I have a John Lennon picture on the one wall, on the opposite wall. And then I have a John Lennon lithograph of him walking on the water. I'm a John Lennon fanatic. So when I met Kevin, I'm like, whoa, this guy reminds me a lot of John Lennon. Holy mackerel. And that was an interesting phase too, because the cavern had Kevin and he looked like John Lennon, which added to the authenticity of the bar. And then there was another guy, Glenn Pelche. He's a radio personality and also a singer like a, in a band called The Beggar's Banquet. But back then it was Sticky Fingers, Rolling Stones songbook band. And he looked just like Mick Jagger. <laughs> just added to the vibe of the cavern. Yeah, I was very influenced by female artists back then, for sure. To, to answer your question, I'm sorry, I'm going all over the place here. It's okay. Um, I'm going to invite you right now to read another portion of The Back Door. Your choice. Well, this guy, he was probably, besides Mad Mel from Manchester, who was a musical visionary, there was another guy named Electric Tex. So he was one of the DJs down there in the early 80s. So this chapter is chapter seven. It's called Electric Tex. And George DeMello, who was another DJ down there as well, was also very good. In the early 80s, another DJ played a significant part in the success of The Back Door. His name is Ron Wensloff, but his DJ name was Electric Tex. Hanging out with, there with Wensloff before I really knew him, he's a crazy genius. He's a trend-setting mofo. He was like a new wave guy with these LED label lapel pins. That's how the acclaimed musician Leo Valvasori remembers Ron Wensloff, a.k.a. Electric Tex. Ron laughs when I tell him this over the phone. I always wanted to know how he got the nickname Tex. Ron said he spent some time in the Canadian forces at Petawawa near the Ottawa Valley. When he showed up for army camp, he was wearing blue jeans and, a cow and cowboy boots. Everyone laughed and went, hey, Tex, and the name stuck. Electronics has, have always been a hobby of Ron's his entire life. So he figures someone else named him Electric Tex because of his, his love for electronics. His own music is based on electronics, and Ron did play on a, a record with Leo Velvasori, but does not think of himself as a musician. One night, Ron happened to go to the back door and the DJ was either sick or simply did not show up. Ron says somebody asked him if he knew how to flip the record in the DJ booth. It could have been Tracy, but he's not really sure. He said, yeah, went to the booth to flip the record. Then for some reason, I got asked back. That's when I met you and Tracy and Zipko. Zipko Raparski was someone uh, that worked down at the back door, but Ron would always pronounce Zipko as Zipko. Everything kind of went from there, he notes. I tell him that many people were curious about the groundbreaking music he played, and they wanted to know how he discovered British bands like The Normal and his personal favorite Mute Records' Fad Gadget. A British musician who successfully melded electronic music and new wave, seasoned with an industrial sound, 
making it resonate with truly avant-garde vocal structure. Ron says he discovered these bands from reading about them in British music publications like Melody Maker and New Music Express. But he went one step further. I was one of the nerds that would actually write them letters, he admits. They started sending me some music. I read the music papers religiously, and then I discovered Daniel Miller, who started Mute Records. Most of Mute's catalog is synth-pop, post-punk, and electronic music. Electronic musician Daniel Miller is also known as The Normal, known for Mute's double-sided single Warm Leatherette slash TVOD. Ron was interested in Miller, who was also a video editor, because Ron had been a video editor at the National Film Board. Daniel's music taste was fad gadget and Depeche Mode, says Ron. Basically, anything that was on mute records, I would investigate. Normal, too. Ron liked to play Ultravox and the band's lead singer, John Fox, who left the band to become a successful soloist. The other thing backdoor regulars note was Ron's almost otherworldly look. He wore a flashing red earring and had wild hair that almost looked like a pompadour. One of his most iconic pieces of clothing was a jacket with a red diagonal triangle on one side and a black and white checkered triangle pattern on the other. He says he may have brought that at Parachute. Parachute, founded in Montreal in the late 70s, is now a designer brand with concept stores in New York and Los Angeles. It began as a high-end fashion house whose new wave style avant-garde clothing was popular with celebrities like Madonna, Duran Duran, and Peter Gabriel. The red and black and white jacket was a perfect match for Ron's electronic look. He says he would search for specific clothes or sometimes stumble upon something while going through the racks in vintage stores. You have to remember back then that not everybody was into what we were into, he tells me. There were little pockets. There was a scene in Toronto and London, Ontario. The Demix, known for 80s punk anthem New York City, were from London. And there was a store in Toronto called New Rose. But they would get stuff in, and I would try and put my own bent on certain things. Ron was also inspired by 1959 science fiction cult movie classic starring Bela Lugosi and directed by Ed Wood. It was one of those so bad it's good films. Remember Plan 9 from Outer Space, he asked? Think about the clothing in that. That is kind of what I was wearing. Shoulder pads and piping and puffy bits. That's Ron. <laughs> Shoulder pads and piping and puffy bits. So great. <laughs> yep. You know, what I really admire about what you've captured is the spirit of active fandom. You know, fandom can be in some ways very passive. You listen or you consume the media and and admire it, but might not do anything about it. And, and this kind of spirit of remaking it, emulating it, re-performing it, uh, I think is is a great thing. And I, I was very glad to read uh, so much of that in, in the book. Now, this is a cruel thing to ask, but I ask it of everyone who comes on the show. You okay. just put out a book. Next projects? Oh, well. <laughs> I've had a couple of people ask me this. Well, years ago, I applied to the Ontario Arts Council. I was writing a book based on my interviews that I've done throughout my life. And I've written chapter one, and I was halfway through chapter two. And I had a book, and it was going to be called Mad Love. Like, why do we do it? Why do artists do it? What is it that drives them? Why are we all so crazy? They turned me down flat. They said, you're not an established writer, so we can't help you. So I thought, okay, well, I was working on that. And the first chapter was Phyllis Diller. 
And I interviewed her of all places. Like I was working in at a chicken processing place, head office in Mississauga. And I interviewed her during my lunch hour. And she's like, oh, Coral, it's so kind of you to do this. And she had a turkey chili recipe that I thought would be really great for this company. And they, the marketing people were really excited, but the head office said, no, no, we don't want a woman like that associated with our company. And I thought that was terrible because she was a concert pianist, a visual artist, and she had a ton of class. It was and just she was her- super, super smart. Oh, Everything I've read. Another strong woman. Yeah. A feminist, you know. So that's the first, that was the first chapter. And then she's going, she was telling me about Lucille Ball, all kinds of stuff about, this is interesting. And then the second chapter is Graham Chapman from Monty Python, because I spent a fair amount of time with him. And I thought, right. I mean, he makes, he made a lot of personal friends on the road. I guess I was one of them because I saw a documentary on him. I thought, yeah, I guess I'm one of those. But he did tell me a lot of stuff. And because my parents are English, and I was raised on the goons and beyond the fringe, mm-hmm. uh, he kept asking me how old I am. How old are you? How old are you? And I thought, I've got some interesting interview footage here. I should really make this into a book and, and kind of weave in what I was going through at my, like what was happening at the time I was interviewing these people. Where was I with them at the time? Like who interviews Phyllis Diller at a chicken, like on your lunch break when you're working <laughs> As a, a CSR at a at a chicken plant. I think you should write this book and just pay no attention to the haters. And besides, the back door is going to make you an established author and just you, you <laughs> just mow ahead. Pay no attention. Okay. So, Coral, I want to thank you for joining me today uh, on Watershed Writers. I want to tell our listeners that The Back Door is now in its second printing, and it is available wherever fine books are sold, most specifically at Wordsworth Books in uh, Waterloo. And I wonder if it's made it to the Rookery Books in Cambridge, which is a new independent bookseller in Cambridge uh, that has a beautiful store that I visited last week. Anyway, yes. So thank you for joining us. Uh, Everyone, read the back door and relive that blaze of glory. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Watershed Writers. We are carrying on with Season 3 and upcoming episodes with David Waltner Taves and Clarence Kachigi. Watershed Writers comes to you every Saturday at 10 a.m. here on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or just want to listen again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud, and let me tell you, there are plenty of them. Before I go, I want to tell you about something I'm excited about. A few weeks ago, I attended the grand opening of Rookery Books, a new independent bookstore in Cambridge located at 25 Main Street in historic Galt. Swing on by for books, cool games, and art, and plenty of literary gifts. Everybody knows that many big readers are born in March, so I know that you've got a birthday coming up or a birthday to buy for soon. If you need a recommendation, just ask Alice, the owner of Rookery Books, for a fantastic gift suggestion. Watershed Writers is produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. We are a team of three. Francis Roberts Riley is our fearless leader and the show's producer. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And I am your host, Tannis McDonald. 
Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global.